18. That's found on page 1820 in your pew Bibles. Before we read the word, let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed. On this bright and sunny morning, we may approach you after a week of witnessing dark deeds that sometimes make us wonder why, Lord. And yet, we are invited to approach. Bless your servant as he shares his, your word with us. Open our ears and our hearts for worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, of, gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, faith in him, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. We're entering into this text, which, which is really part of a, an expansion that Paul is doing on, on the text from last week. And, and you'll recall last week we went through Ephesians 2 and, and 11 to 21 as, as we reflected on how God has been at work creating this unity between Jews and Gentiles, between male and female, across generation gaps, that, that God has been making all those divisions, all those barriers between us null and void. He's been tearing them down. And in tearing them down, he's drawing us together that, that we might become a house, a dwelling place for God. All of God's people gathered together as one. It's not that God wants to remain at a distance from us, but that God wants to draw near us and dwell among us. And as we reflected on that, we ended by focusing on how that, that desire of God to dwell in the midst of us leads us into a response of prayer, a response of sharing our lives together, and also prayer for the world around us. 
Paul picks up from there and, and he begins this passage with, with only a partial statement. He actually stops it halfway through. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He picks that up again in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. We'll get to that next week. But he pauses here because it's important for him to recognize as a Jewish man, he's speaking to a Gentile audience and, and that just didn't happen a whole lot. And he's speaking to them about spiritual things, which, which was always a point of tension. And here he's saying, wait a minute, let me slow down. Before I tell you what I am praying for you about, let me talk to you about the mystery of what God has been at work doing. Brandon, if you want to, we're going to click through several slides this morning on this. The mystery of God. Verses 2 through, through about 9 or 10, it really focuses on this phrase. The word mystery comes up all sorts of times. It is, is Paul talking about, here's the stuff that God's been doing. In some sense, he's going back to chapter 1, where he started saying, God's will is being revealed. And God's will is being made known to us in this time. And, and he's picking up that thread. And he says, I need to make this mystery of God known to all people. And in fact, God has been at work sending me so that this mystery of God, this will of God that seems so mysterious to us, so elusive, can actually be something we understand. It's something that we can start to comprehend. And if we're to summarize those first few verses, this is what we'd come up with. This is the mystery of God, that through the gospel, through the good news that Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins. We've been reconciled with God by grace alone. Grace alone. That through the gospel, Gentiles are now co-heirs together with Israel. There's no more division. There's no separate tracts that say, you know, the Israelites come over here, you get your inheritance, and Gentiles, you come over here and you get your inheritance. No, it's all of us together. All of us together are co-heirs and on top of that, he adds in this phrase of sharing one body. It's an odd word in the Greek. It is, it, it is, it is almost a conjoined body. O almost the idea of Siamese twins. You're sharing one body together. You are integral with each other. You can't pull each other apart. In the gospel, in the good news, you have become co-heirs with Christ. So much so that you're all one body that can't be separated anymore. You live and move and have your being together. And on top of that, the mystery of God is not just that he's uniting all people together, not just that he's, he's creating you as heirs, it's that you now get to share in the promise that is in Jesus Christ. This inheritance is, is something that's opened up for all people. All people being united in God, in Jesus Christ, that you now share in the promise in Jesus Christ, the promise that God is at work even now, making all things new. God is at work even now, making all things new. It's not just an idea for those who have the select secret knowledge. And in fact, in Ephesus, there was a whole lot of attention on gaining access to the mystery of God or the secret knowledge of God. 
there's a whole strand of thought that develops around this time called Gnosticism. And, and Gnosticism believed that we could, we could find ways to, to discover knowledge about God that was secret and only a select few people could ever understand it. And Paul, in the context of Ephesus, where people are spending their life's bathings trying to find out what the secret knowledge of God is, Paul says, I'm going to make it known to you at no cost. I'm going to make that secret knowledge of God, that awareness of who God is and what God's doing, I'm going to make it freely available to you. It's yours. In fact, God wants you to understand it. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. So that this mystery, this unity that God is doing, this bringing all things together in Christ, might be clearly evident to all people. It's an incredible gospel message. In some sense, he's, he's reiterating what he's been saying all along. You've been saved in Jesus Christ from your sins. You were the walking dead. You were, you were nothing. You had no life, and you've been drawn near by God and given a new life in him, and it's not just for a select few. It's open and accessible to everyone. The good news is being made known. And this mystery of God, even more so, is being made known through you. Go to the next slide. We may ask as we go along, so why is God doing this? Why is God making this good news, this mystery known? Why is he uniting Jews and Gentiles? Why is he breaking down all these human divisions? Yeah, so God can dwell there. And so God can dwell among his people. But it's even more than that. God wants to make his multifaceted wisdom known. It's a, it's a fun word, that multifaceted. Uh, Cheryl, as she was praying, talk about, talked about the variegated leaves and the colors on the vine, the variegated. It has this idea of, of multiple dimensions and colors and aspects to it, multiple layers to it. In some senses, it's... Paul trying to say, it's so good. God's wisdom is so good that it's got so many layers and dimensions to it that we can't really fully explore it all, but we're delighted to do so. There's an aspect of the beauty of God that's being revealed in the wisdom. There's an aspect of, of the creativity of God that's being revealed in this. And, and the way that wisdom is being made known is through the people of God come back to that in a minute. So why? Make, so that God is doing all of this and making the mystery known so that, so that he can make his multifaceted, his creative, his beautiful wisdom known. How? Next slide. To whom? He's making this known, and we might expect here, to the other peoples of the earth. It might be our first response. I mean, after all, we're physical people, Right? That if people see the unity among us and they see the diversity that God has gathered into his body, he, of course, is making known his wisdom to other people. That's not what the text says. The text says that God is doing all of this among us so that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, those spirits, those spirits that we don't often like to talk about or acknowledge, so that all that is in the spiritual world may begin to see 
and understand who God is and what God is up to. In other words, the unity of the body of Christ, us being pulled together as one people, is not just an earthly testimony about a good social community. It is a testimony to the very heavens themselves and to the angels and to the demons that God is at work and that God is doing something that they never imagined. God is taking the people who have rebelled against him and turned away from him and he's bringing them together again that in them and through them he might demonstrate his goodness. So if God's doing this in the heavenly realms to make sure that his wisdom is known all over the place and he's doing this to show the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms what he is up to, the question might be, so how? How are you really going to do this? He says, through the church. That's the amazing part of this. God's actually chosen the church to be his vehicle or his instrument to demonstrate his goodness, to demonstrate his character, to demonstrate his wisdom to the rest of creation, the physical creation, but also the spiritual creation. That the church plays this pivotal role in what God is doing to make known his mystery or his will to everything that he has made. Angels, demons, humanity, creation. The church is God's chosen vehicle. I don't know about you, but that kind of gives me a little pause. I mean, we, we kind of look at church, or at least I have looked at church, as something we go to on Sunday morning, right? It's where we, we come together, we worship God together, and we go home. Part of what God's saying in this passage is that you, as the people God has gathered, not just here on Sunday, but throughout the week as the people who are being marked by his name, as the people who have experienced his grace, you, we, are essential to what God is doing in the world. We are part of the fabric of what God wants to do to make all things new. It's downright scary. Because, quite frankly, we haven't done a good job at it. I mean, we've been in the midst of wars and conflicts since the time of Christ. We've had a history of getting in arguments with each other and instead of demonstrating grace, killing each other. We have a history in in this day and age of being God's people, of having heard the gospel, of experienced the grace of Christ and turning around and refusing to extend that grace to others walking around with signs about who God hates and who's going to hell. Instead of walking around saying, this is the grace of Christ. This is the good news. Don't you see it living in us? Don't you see how we've come together? We are still a church throughout the world, not just in North America, marked by racism and classism and hatred for one another we hear this news of God's mystery and God desiring that his mystery would be made known in the heavens and on earth, it should lead us, should lead us to a place of repentance, a place where we weep, where we cry and we say, Lord, we are so sorry 
We have failed to be this unified body that you desired. We have failed to live in the grace that you have lavished on us. We have failed to break down the dividing walls. In fact, we've built them up higher. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us. For your wisdom is not being shown in us or through us. Your love in Jesus Christ is not being made known. We, we have become the barrier. Your gospel being experienced by others. Through the church leads us to a place of confession and lament. Annie Dillard wrote, when we come to worship, when we come to worship, we should have crash helmets on. And the ushers should be buckling us in with safety belts to the pews. Because we are entering the presence of the Holy God. We are. We have gathered here to worship God, to praise God, to celebrate God's goodness. And we have entered into his holy presence. And when we come together, we should be expecting that God will move. That God will be in our midst. That God himself will show up. And that should, that should cause us to tremble on one side. To tremble. To tremble like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm in the presence of a holy God and I'm suddenly aware of my sin. I'm suddenly aware that we as God's people are not living up to the grace that God has lavished on us. Woe to us. And though we come in here with rejoicing, there should be part of us as well that comes in here with trembling. God, have mercy upon us. For we have yet to live the way you have called us. What's striking then is where Paul goes with this. Fully aware that that lament should be evoked within us. Paul says this. In him, in Christ Jesus, and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I mean, our first response, my first response to reading that is, how can it be? How can it be that I should gain access to the throne of God? That I should be able to walk into God's presence with freedom and confidence in Him, through Him, in the grace of Christ through the grace of Christ that first saved us. We continue in it, not by our good works. We continue to enter week after week in this community of God's people, not because we have it all together, not because somehow from last Sunday to this Sunday we live the unity of, bo of the body of Christ perfectly, not because somehow in the last week we have managed to display the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ to everybody we've encountered. But we return here today by the same grace that saved us in the first place. 
by the same death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that united us with Christ's body in the first place. We come not because we have worked out our salvation fully, but because God has still been faithful and God is still drawing us to himself in Jesus Christ. We may approach the throne of God with freedom and confidence. Next slide. Paul's doing something here. He's picking up a, a strand that he's been working through the whole text. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, we encountered this, this passage. Ephesians 1, starting in the middle of verse 19. That power, speaking of the power that, that was at work in the world and is available to us in God, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and the dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul's talking about the throne room of God and how Christ, having died, has been raised up and is seated at the right hand of God. He is ascended in the heaven, and Christ is in this throne room. And as he talks about us having access to the throne room, it is because Christ is seated there. Chapter 2 picks up on that same idea in that same place of being in the throne room, but this time it's speaking about us. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The, Hebrew, or the Greek behind this is even more emphatic. It's not just that he has seated. He has already seated. It is already done. Not he will seat us with Christ somewhere down the road in the future. He has already seated us with Christ. So just as Christ is raised up and seated in the throne room of God, so too we have been given access, not because we deserve it, not because we've somehow perfected the grace and been able to live in response to it fully, but because in God's grace he has lavished upon us the privilege of being in God's presence and in the throne room. So the question, question is, what do we do? If we are to be a witness to God's grace in the world, if through us, the body, the church, we are to make known this mystery of God, the unity that God is bringing between all people through the grace of Christ, and if to do that, God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm. How do we live? What do we do? Steadfast prayer. It's one of our core values. This is how we phrase the value. The good news of Jesus Christ has the ability to renew the world. In other words, not us. It's the good news of Christ that's at work renewing the world. Through prayer, we can participate with God in that mission. We are committed to prayer in all aspects of our communal and personal lives, for without prayer, we can achieve nothing. In other words, we as a church have said that one of our core values is rooted in prayer. And being rooted in prayer, we recognize that we are only participating in what God is doing. We are joining God in the work God has already been at work doing. We are joining Christ in his mission. And because of that, we pray to understand that that prayer is actually what God is up to. 
We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. There's a couple passages in Romans 8. Romans 8, if you go to the next, we'll pick this up next week, the Ephesians passage where Paul actually works out this prayer and what does this prayer look like. But Romans 8, 26 and Romans 8, 34 talk about the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit doing right now? The Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans, wordless groans, groaning on behalf of us. The Holy Spirit in the presence of the Father is interceding. Not only that, Jesus Christ, who has been ascended to the right hand of God, Paul picks up on that language in the letter of the Romans as well. As he's sitting next to God, he is interceding on our behalf. If we want to understand our place in this story, as we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, our first posture, our first act of mission, our first response to God's grace, our first response as a people united together is to be a people who pray alongside Jesus and alongside the Spirit. It's not go out and change the world. It's not go out and love your neighbor perfectly. It's not go out and make sure you've articulated the theology of Scripture as best you can and so that everyone understands it. Our first posture in being wrapped into the grace of Christ, being united with each other, is a posture of prayer joining with Christ and with the Holy Spirit in interceding. We've watched the news last week. It's not only Paris. Beirut was bombed as well. 200-some people caught up in a bombing there. Baghdad was bombed as well. All under the same thing of ISIS spreading its influence and its hatred. We, as God's people, are called to speak into that, to pray into that, to be a people who say, Lord Jesus Christ, what are you at work doing? And how do we join you in that work of undoing the violence and the evil that is in the world? Holy Spirit, what are you at work doing? How do we join you in this work that you are at work doing, making all things new? How do we participate even now when the world seems to be falling apart and evil seems to be greater than we have ever imagined? What do we do? How do we join you? Lord, have mercy. We become a people of prayer. That's the calling here. And next week, we're going to see how that gets worked out a little bit more. And when we come back to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we're going to enter into even more. How does that life of prayer, that unified life of prayer, get worked out among God's people in their relationships with each other and in the way they engage the world around them? But all those activities are grounded here in the throne room of God as God's people together who have been given access in order that we might join Christ and the Spirit in praying. And so, let's pray.
it is both fearful and unbelievably awesome that you wrap us into your throne room. We know full well, and we know that you know full well, we have no business coming here on our own. We are fractured and fragmented. We are unholy. We are, in the truest sense of the word, ungodly. And the way we live with each other and the way we treat those around us despite having received your lavish grace, we still don't let it flow through us. And yet you continue to lavish your grace upon us. You continue to invite us into your presence. You continue to seat us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And you continue to call us to intercede with you on behalf of the world. To join you in the work you are even now doing Teach us to pray. Teach us to join you in your work, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite us to stand and we'll sing together, And Can It Be. Please stand as we sing.